Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi all. Last week, Nina and I discussed Butchie Maselli in the latter half of the episode. In addition to being a thief, and according to mafia fiction writer Vinnie Teresa, the leader of a Gambino hit squad, Butchie was also a peddler of stolen counterfeit bonds. The bond scheme would eventually lead to the exposure of Vinnie Teresa as an informant and to Vinnie becoming a cooperating witness. You know, the past few times you've mentioned Vinnie, you haven't dropped F-bombs like you normally would. I am beyond over Vinnie. Well, thank goodness we're moving on from that. <laughs> Today we'll also be discussing another one of your childhood favorites, Marvin Carger. You have to say it like an old-time wise guy from Boston, Marvin Carger. Yeah, I'll leave the imitations to you. Thanks. Involved in the Bond scheme are also more than a few of the men from Ralphie LaMatina's Nightlight Lounge. If you haven't listened to that episode, check it out. For our regular listeners, I don't think we need to say the link is in the show notes anymore. Well, that's for sure. Ralphie's brother Joe Black and Phil Wagenheim were also wrapped up in the Bond scheme. And Marvin Carger was the nephew of Louis and Max Fox. I've been dying to tell Louis's story in particular, and now I finally have my chance. Sorry for the delay. That is totally on me. We planned on doing a holiday bonus episode back in the holidays about, so I said holidays twice, hello, um, about Louis, A.B. Sarkis, and Adolfo Gravelisi. But my schedule was a nightmare. One of these days, we'll get around to that. But today, you can share with our listeners about both of Marvin's uncles. As for Marvin's connection to dad, Marvin, too, was wrapped up with Jack and Pro. And as we've continued researching, I have my suspicion that dad was more wrapped up with Vinnie Teresa than I realized. Well, wasn't Pro wrapped up with him, too? Yes. Well, that makes sense. So I can only imagine the stories that those two concocted together, or Pulitzer? three of them. Yeah, three of them. Can you imagine? Definitely Pulitzer Prize-worthy. Well, so how should we start? Let's go back to the case we briefly mentioned in our last episode involving Butchie and Frank Capizzi. Then as we move forward, we can get into Louis Fox and Marvin's background. On March 14, 1962, Butchie, Capizzi, and Louis Vecito were arrested in a New York City hotel with $1,072,000 worth of General Motors Acceptance Corps bonds. On October 25th of that year, a total of 13 indictments were handed down. The authorities claimed that the counterfeiting ring had printed upwards of $4 million worth of bonds. By June of 1965, all of the other defendants had pleaded guilty except Capizzi and Butchie. But in August of that year, Capizzi's luck ran out and he was sentenced to three years. After that, the case against Butchie just vanished. His lawyer claimed that the government dropped the charges because the case against him was flimsy. But the rumor was that Butchie cooperated with the authorities and put away his co-defendants. Before we continue with the bonds, I'll give Louis Fox's history. Louis and his brother Max both got their start working for Charles King Solomon, a famous racketeer who controlled a large portion of the narcotics trade, prostitution, and illegal gambling in the Boston area during the 20s and 30s. Solomon was also tight with Dan Carroll, who you might remember from our episode about the founding fathers of the Boston mob. Carroll was a boxing promoter with ties to Filippo Bercola. Solomon entrusted Louis Fox with Revere and the surrounding area and Max with the, with the New Bedford area. Solomon was killed in front of Boston's Cotton Club in 1933, just a few months before the repeal of Prohibition, when the coconut grove that he owned transformed from a speakeasy to a legit nightclub. 
A decade later, the grove would be the site of a deadly fire that took the lives of 492 patrons and employees. After Solomon's death, the Fox brothers branched out on their own. Max Fox was notorious for hijacking the trucks of rival gangs back in his bootlegging days. Raymond Patriarca was also famous for hijackings. Listen to episode 12 to hear more about Raymond's early adventures. Fox's most infamous hijacking became known as the Bergeron Farm Shootout, which involved nearly 50 men, including a young, then unknown gangster named Raymond Patriarca. Four unwitting Dartmouth cops happened upon the melee after being sent out to the farm to investigate chicken thieves. Can you imagine their surprise? Oh, yeah. (laughs) The farm shootout landed Max in the can for a year. He stepped back from his illegal dealings over the years investing in real estate. He passed away in 1966. There was another brother, Abraham, who also fell afoul of the law at least once. In 1950, he was arrested for assaulting a man named Jacob Strauss, but Abraham was found not guilty. When Louis passed away, the headlines read, Louis Fox, financial wizard of the Massachusetts mob, now dead. And the pathological liar, Vinnie Teresa, wrote, Louis Fox was the Meyer Lansky of Massachusetts. But the Jewish community remembered Louis for his philanthropy. Quote, Louis may have been a mobster, but he was our mobster, end quote. He was much more than that. Louis built the Wonderland Dog Track and Amusement Center in Revere and owned hotels, theaters, and shopping centers. In October of 1963, Louis died in a motor vehicle accident in Norwood. The headline read, Noted Sportsman Killed in Crash. It would later be revealed that Louis wasn't alone in the car at the time of the accident. He was accompanied by a young woman. Let's not speculate about that. Okay, no gossip. Louis left behind a a sizable estate. His sister, Sadie Carger, and his attorney were named the executors, which brings us to Marvin Carger. Marvin was born on November 9th, 1933 to Julian Carger and Sadie Fox in Revere, Massachusetts, his uncle Louis' stomping grounds. Prior to 1969, the only time Marvin's name ever made the papers was when he was fundraising for Francis Bellotti's political campaign. And the only notoriety his parents received was when their house was broken into in June of 1965. While they were in New York City, the home was ransacked and mink coats and jewelry were stolen from their Swampscott home. Marvin's younger brother discovered the break-in. Well, I still kind of think that was a Marvin job, stealing from his own parents. Anything's possible. (laughs) The following year, from the middle of July to late August, 5,000 shares of IBM stock were stolen from the brokerage firm Hayden Stone in New York. The public wasn't aware of the theft until two months later when 600 of the shares were discovered in Montreal. And that story only made the papers up in Canada and not in the U.S. Two Canadian citizens were charged with illegal possession of the shares, although they'd only held the shares for about a 24-hour period, allegedly. One of the accused was an accountant named Robert Landori Hoffman. He claimed that he had taken the certificates to a bank only to discover that they had been stolen. The other defendant was described as a textbook salesman. What exactly his involvement was in the scheme was unclear. But according to a CIA report, Robert Landori Hoffman had made a trip to Cuba six months earlier. During the layover in Key West, Hoffman had admitted to an informant that he was a secret agent for the Canadian government. He further stated that he hoped to have something important for his organization when he returned home from Canada, although he apparently didn't say what. He was half in the wrapper at the time, so maybe take it with a grain of salt, but Hoffman would later be arrested and held for nearly a month in Cuba two years later. We were going to gloss over this story, but we couldn't resist. 
hey, anything that involves spies and wise guys is too much for either of us to resist. That's why we have to get our next podcast up and running, Spies and Wise Guys. Okay, back to reality or the surreal as this case may be. The alleged textbook salesman, Arthur Davies, was also some kind of a spy. And an ardent communist. (laughs) And one of the first Allied journalists to enter Hitler's bunker at the end of World War II. Well, his real name was Rudolf Schoen. He was born in Smorgen, Russia, and in 1917, he and his father escaped the revolution and eventually settled in Boston. There he found himself disenchanted with the West, supposedly after the Sacco and Vanzetti trial in 1927. So the natural thing to do was become a commie, I guess. Okay, back to 1966. In August, a married couple from Boston who were believed to be linked to Davies, Samuel Irving Green and his wife Gloria, were arrested in Toronto. Supposedly, the FBI tipped the authorities off. But as usual in Boston, the Greens were out on bail three times over when they were picked up for the fourth time. They pled guilty in September to charges of stealing $55,000 from Gloria Green's employer over a 15-month period. The case was continued to November 8th after the Greens said they'd make restitution for $25,000 within 30 days. I guess the way they intended to make restitution was by stealing more money because Samuel Green was arrested again the following month. He was indicted again in early November, this time for attempting to cash a forged traveler's check and receiving stolen goods. The following day, the FBI arrested him at a broker's office in Boston trying to sell more stolen bonds. Finally, the following month, March in March, Green was sentenced to two years in a Canadian prison. Well, backing up just a little, in February of 67, 2,600 shares of the IBM stock valued at $1 million were discovered by the FBI in a safety deposit box in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Maybe Green gave that up since the timing oh, yeah. exchange for a thing. Anyway, two months later, Ralphie Lamatina was transferred out of the Norfolk prison after several run-ins with Joe Barboza. Barboza was shipped out to a different prison. Ralphie was doing time for being an accessory after the fact in the murders of Tommy DePrisco and Tash Bratzos at the Nightlight Lounge on November 15, 1966. Ralphie had come forward and pleaded guilty to the lesser charges and in turn took the heat off of the others, including his brother, Joe Black, who were involved in the slayings. DePrisco and Brazos were shaking down wise guys trying to bail their boss, Barboza, out of prison. Needless to say, Barboza took the opportunity to torment Ralphie while they were both in Norfolk, including threatening to poison his food and standing over Ralphie with a hatchet while he slept. In September of 1967, Hayden Stone reported another theft to the authorities. This time it was 56 T-bills valued at $1.5 million. A stop order was placed on them and the company claimed it was fully insured for the loss. The newspapers tried to make it sound like the thefts were a common occurrence, citing several examples of recent alleged thefts ranging from a half a million to two and a half million dollars. Six months later, four men were arrested in New York. Three of the men were charged with trying to sell a $100,000 T-bill to the fourth man. The cops watched as the exchange took place on a New York City sidewalk. The T-bill was one of those stolen from Hayden Stone in September. Arrested were Max Kamen and his son Stuart, Michael Parker, and Seymour Siskind. They only found the guys through a private investigator because one of the men was going through a nasty divorce. Talk about getting lucky. I think that's the case in most of these stories. It certainly wasn't their investigative skills. Oh, yeah. Siskin was an interesting character, also known as Big Seymour and Cy the Jew. He was born in Brooklyn on March 11, 1913. He had a record going back to his teens, and like Vinnie Teresa, he was involved in gambling junkets to San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
There were all sorts of things happening in San Juan. Remember episode 41? At least two of those guys were facing charges in San Juan. Okay, back to Massachusetts and the bonds. In October of 1968, a grand jury was convened in Essex County. Called in to testify were Phil Wagenheim, Vinnie Teresa, and Frank Valero, among others. The press noted the heavy police presence at the courthouse. Two banks on the North Shore lost over a half a million dollars because of loans that were issued using counterfeit or stolen bonds as collateral. 18 men were indicted in the middle of November on charges of manipulating bank funds for loan sharking. All of the indictments involved loans issued by the Lynn Safe Deposit and Trust Company on Market Street. And all the men pleaded innocent, including Richard Donati, Bobby's brother, and Joe Modica. Don Pepino was also informing on himself since he was wired up too, but the feds have never released those recordings, and they certainly didn't use them in court. Frank Valero was killed in a car accident at four in the morning on New Year's Day in 1969. His car swerved off the McClellan Highway in East Boston and hit a retaining wall. It took the fireman half an hour to pull him from the wreckage. The papers blamed his death on the icy roads, but the timing was awfully suspicious. Marvin Carter was arrested on October 21st, 1969 on charges of the theft and sale of more than $1 million in treasury bills. The papers described Marvin as a Newton Center deli owner. And I still love the name of the deli, the onion roll. Oh, it's great. Carter was arrested a second time the following week on charges of selling a $100,000 T-bill. The T-bill had been reported missing from a New York bank earlier in the week as part of a $13 million loss. Bail was set at $2,500. I know that it was always assumed that it was Vinny who gave them all up, but the 1969 timing on Marvin makes me think of Jack Kelly. Wait, will you? Okay, okay. In December of that year, Johnson Cotty, Carger, and Joe Black Lamatina pleaded innocent to charges of selling stolen T-bills. Carger was accused of selling two million worths and Cotty 125 grand worth and Joe Lamatina a meager 5K. They were all released on bail. Larry Bione, Joe Black, and two other men were arraigned in March of 1970 on charges of receiving stolen property and conspiracy. The stolen property included five $100,000 bonds that had also been stolen from Hayden Stone. Joe Black was arraigned again in May of 1970 and charged with transporting more than a half a million dollars worth of stolen T-bills across state lines. Indicted along with him was Carmen Mastrotatoro of Worcester, who was a longtime associate of Pinky Panarelli. Well, our listeners might remember that Pinky Panarelli became an FBI informant not too long after Vinnie Teresa in the early 1960s. No shortage of rats in this story either. In June of that year, Phil Wagenheim was arrested for transporting and disposing of 655 shares of stolen American Express stock worth about 43 grand. Still later that year, Joe Black was indicted on charges of conspiring to transport 900 shares of stolen IBM stock across state lines. A bench warrant was issued for him in November when he failed to appear in court. Joe took it on the lam. In July, the sentences were handed down and 20 men were convicted, mostly on Vinnie Teresa's testimony. Marvin Carger received 12 years, even though he had made a deal with the prosecution for a five-year sentence in exchange for a guilty plea. Carger later appealed. Judge Charo vacated the sentence in February of 75, and Carger was released for time served. Butchie Maselli was sentenced to 10 years, and Carlo Mastrotatoro was sent up for nine. The following month, the pathological liar Fat Vinny testified in front of a congressional committee. He even had to smear Marvin Carger's father, Julian, during his testimony, calling him a, quote, big-time racketeer. Vinny continued on with his tale, giving details about how Marvin had used the bonds to obtain a bank loan totaling $26,000. 
Oh, and the story about a fictitious maitre d' and counterfeit credit cards. I'm not going down a Vinny rabbit hole, I promise. Okay. Phil Wagenheim was sentenced to eight years in prison on September 15th, 1971. In November of 76, just 24 hours before Phil was to be paroled, the U.S. Justice Department blocked his release. His lawyer, Joe Bolero, appealed their decision, but the appeal was denied and Phil had to serve out his sentence. Joe Black would remain a fugitive until January of 78 when he was arrested using the name Salvatore Sfiga, claiming he was an Italian citizen who didn't speak English. He was hiding in Italy all that time and even did 15 months in the can there. Somehow he managed to exit and re-enter the country without a passport. He was probably hanging out with Louis Menacchio on the ski slope. Oh, probably. His attorney, Joe Bolero, said that Lamatina sought legal help from the U.S. Consular Service in Italy, but they turned him down. The Massachusetts judge ordered him held on half a million dollars bail, but he wasn't locked up for long. I love that story. It's a good match for Frank Capizzi's tale about how he would listen to someone speaking English and hear Sicilian. It's all amazing. Okay, our listeners are getting off easy today with a short episode. Well, we're getting off easy. Extra time for us to play in the sun. I wish, as always, thank you all for listening. Just a couple of more episodes until the end of season one. Next week, we'll be discussing the end of Jack Red Kelly's criminal career. Well, I like to think of it more as a semi-retirement. Now you're teasing our listeners. Oh, I had to get it in there. I don't blame you. Okay, hope you join us again next week, everyone. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.